the show has been a pretty interesting journey. You probably have heard the phrase, don't meet your heroes. Well, I'd like to amend that to say, you will never meet your heroes. Every time you go to meet a hero of yours, I guarantee you'll meet the human being who you confused as some sort of fictional, ideal representation of what you want to be or what you want to look up to. And that's not a bad thing. That's not me criticizing any of the guests. It's just the reality that many of the people who you will look to in your life and think they are something, that something that you think they are is probably more about you and something inside you. There's nothing wrong with it. As we figure out what type of guests we want to book this year, we've had to talk a lot about what we're after. One of the things I said on the book club last week is stop letting these house cats tell the raccoons to stop eating trash. Like if they stopped eating trash, food would be provided for them. It's just something that irks me about today's influencer marketplace, let's say. And as we pick the next round of guests, there's a real desire of mine to find people that have lived the things they preach and have been through the challenges that have informed what they're teaching us. There's a real difference between rational knowledge and empirical knowledge. Rational knowledge means it sounds like it'll work. Empirical is I've been through it, I've seen the results, and this works. And we're looking for people with real-life knowledge. We're looking for people that can teach me how to be a spiritual, loving, kind father, son, boyfriend, and friend, even though life is coming at me at a million miles an hour, and even though I'm trying to raise my son on below the median income in my area, and even though I'm a single dad, and even though I don't have the college degree, I'm looking for people to teach me how to be in the trenches of life, because that's where I am. And I am not saying that life is not wonderful. I love life, as hopefully you know by now. I am just saying that the experience of existing for me is not a walk in the park. And Reese turned to me and he said, hey, I think we got one. So for today's episode, somebody who I think has some real on-the-ground life experience, somebody who you might enjoy hearing a little bit of their crazy odyssey that they've been on is Dr. Fleet Mall. Fleet Mall is a seeker. He's somebody who spent a lot of time learning the Buddhist tradition, a lot of time learning mindfulness techniques. He has a doctorate in psychology, and he's also somebody whose life caught up with him at an early age and ended up being arrested for trafficking, something as somebody who has also been charged with trafficking I can relate to deeply. Life comes at you fast. There's two things you can do anytime you're in the midst of some lifey lifeness, and that's yes, something is going on in your life right now that is tough. The next question, what are you going to do? This is the conversation I had with Dr. Fleet Mall that we've called, what are you going to do? Hey, Dr. Mall, do you mind if I call you Fleet? Not at all. Okay. So you are actually the first guest we've ever had that was booked from a podcast booker. Normally we get requests and they're all kind of really salesy, really self-helpy, like this is how you solve your marriage problems or this is how you solve your PTSD. They're just people who obviously haven't listened to the show or really know what we believe here, which is like, we're not here to solve people's problems. We're here to maybe give them clues along their journey of working through their own life stuff. But uh, Reese, my uh, producer, turned to me and he said, oh man, we finally got one. He's a drug trafficking Buddhist. <laughs> and, um, formerly. I don't know, formerly, I have also been formally charged with trafficking 
I was not convicted, but addiction, drug dealing is part of my story. And I just felt like, ah, this is, this is one of my people. This is somebody who understands both sides of life. Before we get into your story, I'd like to start the podcast this way, which is this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like, but Fleet Mall, who are you? Hmm. Who am I? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the deep meditative answer, and that's um, empty, luminous cognizance. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of it is all story, right? The rest of it's all narrative. But in terms of uh, who I am today, I'm definitely the product of a lot of formative experiences, the time I spent in prison being one of them, being a baby boomer and going headlong into the counterculture of, of that era, graduating from high school in 1968, a classic angry young man with a big hole in my gut. I went headlong into the counterculture, and that was very formative. Now, some 50 years of Buddhist practice and training, also very formative. And I, primarily, I would say, apart from being a husband and uh, having been a father and so forth, that I'm primarily a teacher. I'm a teacher and a coach, a trainer. That seems to be my place of flow and sweet spot. And so I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly learning and training myself and opening up to new skills. And I think I'm good at integrating and synthesizing what I learn and expose myself to into something that I can then pass on to others as, as a teacher, coach, and trainer. It's beautiful. Well, I've enjoyed your book, Radical Responsibility. I have it in two forms, which is always a, a decent sign. <laughs> I have it in audio and in print. I come from the recovery tradition, and we're, we're a pretty skeptical lot. Before somebody tells us what we should do or what their suggestions are, we like to know why they're qualified. One of the things that drew me to your story is that both you and I, you, earlier than I, so you can be a teacher to me, we both put some pretty severe roadblocks in our life in stopping us from having what would be maybe the, the classic evolution of going into adulthood. And so I, I came out at 22, having not really been sober or present or conscious for 10 years. And I had to learn how to be an adult as an adult. And you lost a chunk of your life to the prison system, which obviously you can continue to develop in there. Some people do and some people don't. But could you take us back a little bit of what your life was like? What, what led you into your path, which ultimately became one of becoming a, a Buddhist teacher. But maybe you can go back early. You could go back into that angry kid you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try to cover it a little bit. You know, I actually, the roadblocks, I, I think I was pretty good at putting roadblocks in, in, my, in my life all on my own. So I did that a lot. Certainly my childhood set me up for it. I graduated from high school in 1968, one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history and, you know, huge counter clash and culture clash and the anti-war movement happening and just so much going on. And 1968 was the year of all the assassinations and the Martin Luther King assassination, Bobby Kennedy and the Kent State killing. So it's so much going on. And I was angry, had a big hole in my gut. That was basically the result of alcoholism in my own family. I had a pretty good middle-class family with good values, a Midwestern Catholic family, but we had alcoholism in our family. And so that really splits things, you know, for me, it was my beloved mother who would get drunk once a week, twice a week, every other week, and suddenly become a different person, go from being this very good mother and very talented, artistic, intelligent person to being this really scary, rageaholic, alcoholic, crazy person. 
and you know, classic Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. And when you're young, that just really splits you, you know. One, you get this complete abandonment thing from your mother that you know is suddenly gone and replaced by this other human, this other form, very scary form. I think even when even when my mother was herself, I think there was some areas in which it kind of created a little bit of overwhelm for me as well. So, I mean, I've got both both the, the fear of being overwhelmed and the fear of being abandoned, right? I've got both of them in my uh, conditioning, right? So I had a hole in my gut coming into adolescence. And I was, you know, the other thing was, I remember when I was very young, as an early young child, preschool, uh, I remember life being really vivid, magical, real. You know, I felt like I was really plugged into the universe. And probably around the time of starting school, that just went away and everything went to gray tones. And I wasn't happy about that. And I was always trying to, to reclaim that life where I felt plugged into something real, vivid, magical, meaningful. And that probably had to do with the alcoholism and other things. And in some ways, it's maybe a normal developmental process that I just never made peace with. But suffice it to say, I wanted it back. And of course, the early places where I felt like I was plugging back into something were drug, sex, and rock and roll, you know, and all of that, right? And, and of course, there were some elements of really plugging into something that felt more real and more genuine along the way with all of those things. But they're somewhat mirage-like, and they certainly have a lot of baggage, especially if you have a proclivity to addiction, right? And having a big hole in my gut, literally, I was trying to fill it with any kind of experiences I could, right? So that took me down a long and twisted road. At the same time, I was always a spiritual seeker because ultimately what I was seeking was a spiritual reality. And so I was always inclined in a way, always very interested in the mind. I, as an undergraduate, I majored in psychology. I found my way, actually, it was in high school that I was first introduced to Eastern philosophy and uh, some, I, in a comparative religion class, we, we read some, some Hindu scriptures and some Buddhist scriptures. And when I read those Buddhist scriptures, that was the first thing that ever really resonated with me. The faith of my childhood just didn't resonate with me at that time. I, from early on, I remember just even like in kindergarten kind of going, eh, you know, it just I wasn't connecting with it. That began that road of embracing the Buddhist tradition. It was the first thing that ever made any sense to me. I mean, if if there is such a thing as multiple lifetimes, and I tend to think that does kind of make sense of a lot of things, I, I really suspect that was probably a, a Buddhist in, in many lifetimes past. But at any rate, the minute I, I saw that, and I was growing up in Missouri, it wasn't a hotbed for that kind of thing. You know, it wasn't like being on the East Coast or the West Coast, especially California or anything like that. But a very conservative area. I found the book Zen and the Art of Archery by Herigl, which a German who back in the maybe 50s or so, had been in Japan and studying the Japanese art of archery, Kudo, and, and with working with his master, it basically was a deconstruction of his own ego. And I recognized that was me. And then I started reading D.T. Suzuki and other things, listening to Alan Watts and like a lot, a lot of people in my generation. But it took me a while to find like-minded folks. It wasn't really till I left and started traveling and became an expat, an angry expat, just wanting to escape the drug world I'd become immersed in and and Nixon had been reelected to a second term. I just wanted to get out of the country. I ended up traveling in South America for quite a while. And again, very formative experiences, beautiful experiences. But I was still caught up a bit. The drugs weren't in the foreground then, but it was still in the background. And eventually living down there to just to continue to live outside the mainstream. And, and I justified this outlaw lifestyle with all this us versus them thinking and got into small time drug trafficking just to to live outside the system. But along the way, I actually discovered my first actual teacher, my Buddhist teacher, my really my root teacher, the Tibetan master Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He started Naropa University, then Naropa Institute in 1974. 
And it began with these summer sessions that they expected a couple hundred people, and they got several thousand. It was this huge spiritual happening that drew people from all over the country. It was the happening. A lot of famous people that we know about, cultural icons, were there. What do you think about your your time when you're you're in that seeking and you're exploring? Because I totally, when I look back on my drug use and my my early years, which was like there wasn't an evilness to it at all. It was really I was like an explorer. I was trying to find the alternate universes. I could do myself. I could do cocaine, and it was it was armor. It was like this alternate state of being for a world that I wasn't socially made for. I could do LSD or mushrooms and I was exploring these alternate worlds. The problem is there's those alternate worlds I could never manage to stay in. And I always ended up back in reality. So all the explorative work that I did there didn't quite translate into much that was useful here. In your own, since since you have a doctorate in psychology, what do, what do you think of that kind of archetype of the human who's really seeking and they just, they end up not grabbing much useful or applicable to their life along the way. Yeah. Well, I resonate with that. I mean, I was certainly an explorer. There were a lot of amazing things in terms of the drug exploration I did, experimentation, especially with all the psychedelic drugs. I, there were some mind expanding things about cocaine use, but it, boy, boy, that's really addictive and it slides into addiction pretty quickly. So, you know, it definitely was an exploratory thing for me, and and it's not something I regret. I do regret my involvement with drug trafficking because I know ultimately I'm sure that created harm in other people's lives, but um, I didn't intend it to, and I was naive about that, but nonetheless, I'm sure it did. But my certainly my initial explorations of that whole realm and that whole era with the music and the drugs and the whole counterculture explosion and trying, we're really rejecting the world we've been introduced to by the World War II Depression era generation of our parents. There were a lot of reasons to reject that. Rather than kind of figuring out how to sift through the wheat and chaff of that, because there was a lot of good, there was a lot of wisdom uh, that generation had as well, a lot of good values. We just kind of, most of us, uh, certainly me and a lot of people in my generation, we just rejected the whole thing through the whole rule book out and then tried to find our own way. And so we made a, a big mess along the way. But yes, there was very much that I resonate with that, that seeking because of that hole in my gut, I slid off into the addictive aspects of it because there were other people that went through that same era at the same time who didn't have as big of a hole in the gut, who ended up transforming their experience of the counterculture into creating a lot of amazing things, whether they were doing great social change work or environmental work, or the whole digital age came out of that. I mean, most of the people that created the original computers and so forth were all psychedelic explorers of one kind or another, right? So, you know, I definitely slid off into that and also the alcohol use and so forth. So, it was a mixed bag for me, but certainly, and and there were the early years of it. One of the reasons I left for South America was because the bloom had really faded on the psychedelic era. It had shifted. Everyone was devolving into... It was devolving into a hard drug, uh, much darker uh, shadow kind of world. You know, there was a few years where you could travel around. If you saw some people with long hair dressed like you, you could go there and you didn't have to fear anything. You could share a joint, you know, and there was a... It was really, you know, that the the flower children, you know, that, that kind of whole era, but it, it didn't last long. It, it got corrupted pretty soon and slid into a lot of a lot of shadow stuff, right? So I wanted to escape that, and that's why I headed for uh, Latin America. But at any rate, somehow my teacher found me down there. I literally think probably in some ways he did. But anyway, I read about him in Rolling Stone magazine, which did a feature story on the first summer session at Naropa, and it was in like the fall edition of Rolling Stone magazine. 
And some people found their way up to my place, way up in a remote valley in the Andes Mountains in Peru. They had that with them. And I read that and I just knew I've got to go there. And I, that, I, my personal studies and explanations had taken me into the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I knew that was my tradition. I wanted to practice in a lineage of Milarepa. I didn't know how I was going to do that. There, weren't very, there were only three or four books that had been published at that time. But when I saw my teacher's name, I knew I had to go there. And eventually I did. And I came back to the States and enrolled. And I got my master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology there. But I continued to kept this shadow life going on and funded my my life through part-time smuggling. I would disappear once or twice a year, go back to South America. I'd make enough money to, to live my lifestyle. And when I ran out of money, I'd go back and do it again. I wasn't getting rich. And my, my marriage fell apart. No No big surprise there. So I was solving all my problems with money. I got a separate condo for my ex-wife and, and my our son to live in. And, you know, I was just dealing with my problems with money. I wasn't really dealing with my problems. And along the way, I was going deeply into Buddhist training, obviously compartmentalizing my life big time, very sincerely doing a lot of retreat practice. I had the great good fortune to somehow become close to my teacher, keeping this secret life going and traveled with him a lot. But I had this secret life and sooner or later caught up with me. I, I knew I had to stop and eventually I did, but it caught up with me because others I've been involved in ended up getting busted and they decided to invite me to the party. So I was <laughs> indicted and I actually was trying to figure out what to do when I knew I was going to be indicted. I mean, I, I knew I was being investigated. I knew I was going to be. And they were, they were threatening me with, you know, serious time, 30 years to life in prison. I asked my teacher, he was actually in Canada at the time. So I, I, a mutual friend went and talked to him for me, who was up there, and I asked him, what should I do? Because I wasn't sure if I should go on the run, whether this was just some cultural karma and Ronald Reagan kind of thing, or, or whether this is my personal karma, I need to stay and deal with it. And I was scared of both. I didn't have a lot of money at that time at all, so I didn't really have money to go on the run. I was terrified of going to prison. The word came back from him, and he said, you know, if you go on the run, it would be very hard for you to continue your path and continue as a student with me. But even if you're in prison for quite a long time, you can continue to practice and we can continue to work together. I did take that advice and I've actually never regretted it. I turned myself in in 1985 and ended up serving 14 years in a federal prison. Must be a, a strange um, change of pace to go from Naropa to prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, gra I graduated from Naropa in 1979, so I, I'd already been out in the world for about five or six years and, and made a, a kind of lame attempt to get involved in becoming a psychotherapist and try to get a job with a major clinic in Boulder, Colorado. Didn't get the job. So I just went off into other stuff and continued to support myself with, with the part-time uh, drug smuggling rather than developing a, a really viable livelihood. And I knew it had to stop, but I didn't, I didn't manage to untangle that karma uh, and that, and my habitual patterns and addictions before I actually managed to earn my way into a federal prison sentence for, for drug trafficking. Um, entertaining suggestions by anyone who seems to have some ideas or wisdom or suggestions to make, you know, where, where does all that come from? Well, the radical responsibility model, the name of my book, that whole model, uh, that I developed that in prison. I mean, you know, it draws on timeless wisdom. But anyway, for me, it arose and, and got clarified while I was in prison. So it definitely comes directly out of how I turned my own process of incarceration into a journey of transformation and, and maturity uh, and evolution rather than it being a completely debilitating one, which it is for so many other people who end up incarcerated. So, so tell us about the, the formation of, of the radical responsibility framework. I, yeah. I think it shares a lot in terms of the way 
I approach life and my mentors approach life in which there's, I have to be honest, I'm a little disappointed with the the modern therapy psychology world. I feel like it's it's very affirmative and almost scared to make strong statements. And I love I love my therapist dearly, but at some point you just want to be like, look, just just tell me what you really think. Stop telling me everything's okay. Am I am I fucking up my life right now? In my own recovery tradition, it's built on two things basically. It's built on deep personal responsibility for everything you do and every engagement you have in this world and on the fundamental that we are all imperfect beings, all of us. And and you see that in almost all the religious traditions too, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism is this acknowledgement that we're all imperfect beings, but the, the standard right now feels, feels off. So, so tell me about how your own personal philosophy got developed, taking yeah, what you from the past and then what you were learning in the correction system. Yeah, and I agree that the appeal of psychotherapy has veered a little bit. And it's kind of interesting because there's some really fabulous work in psychotherapy and and some really great breakthroughs, especially the integration of psychotherapy with mindfulness and all the neuroscientific research into it and all the body-centered types of therapy and all the trauma treatment. So there's some absolutely amazing things going on. And the tremendous promise of psychedelic-assisted therapies, especially with intractable addictions and depression and so forth. But at the same time, there's this whole cultural move that's affecting not only psychotherapy, but affecting so many different things of this kind of pervasive victim mindset has become ever-present in society. And it, and it, it comes out of a, of a recognition of suffering, but I think the strategies are wrong because enabling someone to stay in a victim mindset around their own suffering isn't going to help anyone to transform their suffering in, into any positive direction. So for me, in prison, I very quickly realized that what I was going to be able to do with my time, whether I was going to survive my time there, whether I'd be able to get out someday, and what I'd be able to do with that was going to, was absolutely 100% up to me. And I very quickly realized that the environment I was in was an incredibly negative environment where most of my fellow prisoners, understandably so, were walking around with a huge victim story, even though society sees them as the perpetrators they feel victimized by the system. Actually, most of them are terribly victimized from their childhood, which is how they end up on that path to begin with. But, you know, they mostly had a lot of anger. And, and you know, when you get arrested and you go through a judicial process and end up in prison, it's this continual shaming process. And you're really buried under a mountain of demonization and shaming. So, you know, just instinctively, you armor up to just to protect your very being, your psyche. And what most people armor up with is bitterness and anger in their victim story. I, I remember early on when I got to that prison, you know, you meet somebody and often what you do is you go out for a walk on, on the yard. There's a big tr- track you could do laps on, on a lunch break or something. And the ritual is they share their victim story, you share their vic- your victim story, right? My, my, my ball partner stabbed me in my back. My lawyer screwed me over, you know. And after I went through that ritual two or three times, I was like, boy, I, I, I certainly, I don't want to hear my own story anymore. I don't really want to hear anybody else's story, which is not very compassionate, but that's just not where I want to live and who I want to be. And I quickly realized that if I wasn't really proactive about it, I could end up there. And I, I not only, I didn't want to come out of prison angry and bitter with a victim mindset, but I didn't want to live that way while I was in there. Fortunately, I'd had enough Buddhist training. I was very grateful I'd had all that training before I went in, enough psychological training but I knew I was going to be really proactive. And it was clear, you know, there were a lot of people that uh, participated in, in, my, um, in my conviction, let's say. You know, I, I ended up being convicted of the so-called kingpin statute. 
I was involved in drug trafficking, but I don't think I was a kingpin by any stretch of the imagination. But what they do is anybody that's involved in, as you know, in any kind of selling of drugs or drug trafficking or dealing, you're involved with a lot of networks. So they choose one person that becomes a kingpin and everybody else testifies (laughs) against them, right? And so, you know, I did a lot of people's time. Let's say it that way. I did a lot of people's time. And also when the government prosecutes you, they don't play by the rules. They don't, they don't, they don't follow the law. They don't do anything. They play hardball, right? So they break all their own rules. They break all the laws. There were a lot of people I could have been blaming things on. I I could have had a victim story a mile long, but it was really clear to me. I I didn't even want to go there at all. I knew I had to embrace 200% responsibility for having got myself into that situation and what I was going to do with it. And I very proactively used practices from my Tibetan Buddhist tradition, like Tom Lin, exchanging self for other on the medium of the breath to really work with anybody that I was holding any enmity towards and to dissolve that enmity because I, I didn't want any of that guiding my life. That's kind of where this was born, this idea. Usually the way I describe radical responsibility is voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life including the ones we can see we had something to do with creating, allowing, or enabling, or just stumbling into, as well as the ones we can't see we had anything to do with at all. They just, everybody it just fell out of the sky and landed in my lap, right? But at some point, the salient question is, what am I going to do with it? Because there it is in my lap. It may be completely unjust, maybe a horrible injustice. And, and it's not to say that we shouldn't have compassion for people that's had, we should have tremendous compassion for ourselves. And the human condition is really terrible and people are victimized in terrible ways. But, you know, if we get stuck there in that mindset of victimization, it's going to be very limiting to our lives at the very least. So at some point to say in question, even when some, a circumstance is something that feels so unjust and something I can't say I had anything to do with creating, you know, the, at some point, the question, what am I going to do with this? Right. You can't turn the clock back. Here it is. It's in my life. So what's, the, to me, the most important question, what's the most creative way I can respond to this that'll move my life forward in ways that are beneficial for myself and others and those kind of win-win ways of getting our mutual needs met, right? So that's where it was really born. And then it was influenced by lots of different traditions of psychology and the perennial wisdom and so forth. I really have developed an understanding of the psychology of not just saying, well, you should do that. Okay, but how do you do that? And what are all the obstacles to doing so, right? There's a whole path of healing that we need to do even to be able to to do that. But that really guided my life throughout prison. And it allowed me, and I don't describe this at all to pat myself on the on the back, but rather to kind of prove the case, I guess, and also to point to what's possible. When you're in prison, you're in a complete radically disempowered place. And I was in a maximum security federal prison hospital that had uh, 1,000 patients, 600 medical, 400 psychiatric, and then about 300 general population inmates there to help run the place. And I was in that group. And my job for 14 years was teaching school. And by the way, when I got locked up, I got locked up with a 30-year no parole sentence. I was 35 years old. The paper said I'd be 65 before I could have any chance of release. I pretty much, I thought my life as I knew it was over with. And it really was a while. Once I got to federal prison, it was probably six months before I figured out the system. And I realized that fortunately, if I stayed out of trouble, there was a lot of good time I would get and that I'd end up serving 18 and a half on that 30 years. And then my appeal went, took about three years to go through the courts. And, and on appeal, they cut off one count, which should have given me a new trial. It didn't. But at any rate, it, it knocked it from 30 to 25, my aggregate sentence. 
So then at that point, I knew I would serve 14 and a half if I managed to stay out of trouble. No guarantees because it's really easy to get in trouble in prison. It took me a while to even figure that out. And it still felt like forever, of course, right? But nonetheless, I did end up serving 14 and a half years. Let's talk about well, stories for a second. One of the, the things that came up in radical responsibilities is, is the victim story. This is one of the areas I think we could have an interesting discussion because in my estimation, we're creatures of stories. All of our progress mm-hmm. is, built, is built upon gathering around the fire and saying, hey, you know what? I think I noticed that gazelle getting tired when I chased it. If we had another person to be at the other end, we could really run this creature down to exhaustion. One of the things that is fascinating to me about Buddhism is that Buddha, as far as, I've under, as far as I understand, made no ontological statements, did not talk about what the ultimate reality is. And I don't think any of us will ever know what the ultimate reality is. I don't think we're capable of experiencing it. Our eyes certainly aren't capable of seeing colors as they ultimately are. They see our colors as the human body, the human senses experiences them. One of the things that I've noticed in, in years of therapy is that a, a good therapist is a good story editor. They say, nah, 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 that, that, the way that story is written kind of sucks. A, a really bad therapist, which I've had them, is somebody who's like really trying to get at the ultimate reality and they might be digging you into your crap more than you need to. And this is one of the things that irks me about the, I think the, the stereotype of spirituality is that it's some dehumanization and that you will be your personality will be lobotomized and you will be this this bland <laughs> non person that is somehow no longer human and i you know i'm fortunate to know some of the great teachers i've seen them in traffic and i've seen them when their wife upsets them and i've recognized that the humanity is is certainly always going to be there and so when you are talking about editing of your stories and we do this all the time So if you talk to a friend who you had an experience with in fifth grade and you say, hey, remember that time we got caught stealing candy? Yeah, you you know, because you were so slow, that friend will probably say, well, no, 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 that's not why we got caught. You know, we've we've both written the story different over the years. When you're writing the story and when somebody's helping you writing your story, I think when it's working correctly, it normally tends to write the story in your benefit in a way that keeps you moving on the path. How do you view the, the story of self? How do you get the story straight in your framework? Stories are very malleable. They're, they're narratives. That's just what they are. And, and as I answered your question, somewhat tongue-in-cheek to begin with, who am I? You know, I said empty, luminous cognizance, and the rest is story. Because that's really actually true. And one of the great insights of psychotherapy is if your story's not working for you, just change it. Make up a new one that's more affirming and more empowering, right? And you, you can literally do that. Same time, stories are important. They're a big part of our culture. So it's kind of a it's 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 kind of a both end with story, right? Stories are a very important part of our life. Narrative is an important part of our life. Great literature and films and and our whole cultural narrative is very. It gives a lot of meaning to to our lives and richness. But at the same time, we need to remember it is narrative, and sometimes we end up with internal narratives that are very disempowering and really block us in our lives. They are made up one degree or another. I mean, there are at least limited versions, right? All of our stories are at least a limited interpretation of the available data. So if we have a story that uh, our personal story about our life, it feels very limiting to us, then why not shift it? And I'm not talking about just some Pollyannish approach to just putting on rose-colored glasses and creating a different story, but there is always a different way to look at it. There's always a more 
self-empowering way to look at any series of circumstances of life circumstances we've been through. So I think stories are very valuable and malleable, and it's very important to understand that that we are narrative-driven beings. It's really important to understand what are the narratives that are driving my life. Are they supporting where I would aspire to go with my life, right? So I think that that's one of the very important insights, and, and I think good good therapists understand that. Just continuing with uh, to just get people a sense of the radical responsibility and what's possible. Being in the kind of prison I was in, sociologists call it a total institution, which means it's like a totalitarian state. Resistance is futile. And in this place, because it was a psychiatric facility as well as a medical, if you tried to buck the system, you'd literally be on concrete bunk on four-point restraints, being hosed down at night and pumped to a hell, full of halidol or Thorazine. I mean, that's literal, right? You, you could not buck the system. So how do you get anything done there? And also, anytime you asked any guard or staff person, administrator, could we try this? The answer was always no. And they always had a story. Well, we used to do that, but, you know, some inmate abused it and we don't do that anymore, right? So, always so how do you get anything done in that environment? And, you know, this was a huge chunk of my life. I mean, most people in prison, they just try to numb themselves out and get through the time. But I had enough Buddhist training that I didn't want to just eject this huge chunk of my life. I wanted to live it. It was important to me. I was getting a lot of value out of being a school teacher and a lot of reward out of that. I got deeply involved in 12-step work to deal with my own substance abuse issues. I had a meditation group going in the prison chapel. So I was doing a lot of things that gave my life meaning and purpose. I was staying in good shape and so forth. But I, I really wanted to do more. And I learned how to be skillful with people. I just learned how to, how to get in relations, not to manipulate them, but in a very straightforward way, how to be consistent, persistent, professional, and get in relationship with that people. And uh, and to not get into blaming, not, you know, in other words, to take ownership. If I want to create something, it's up to me to figure out how to do it. It's not like I'm not entitled to it. The world's not entitled to it. This person's not a jerk because they're not letting me do it. It's really up to me to figure out how to make it happen. And taking that approach, I started two national organizations that catalyzed two national movements while I was in prison. And you're not supposed to be able to do that at all. One of those is a thriving nonprofit today, Prison Dharma Network, Prison Mindfulness Institute, which has a huge international impact. The other was the prison hospice movement. We started the first hospice in a prison anywhere in the world there in the height of the AIDS crisis. That was a big part of my life there, taking care of men who were dying of, of AIDS and other illnesses on a daily basis. I got that model out into the world. Last count, there's probably 75 or 80 prison hospices in this country, in state and federal prisons. And it's absolutely changed the nature of end of life care. And it's really impacted medical care altogether in the prison system. I was just at the right place at the right time to play a part in all that. That's just what's possible when you take this approach of radical ownership, radical responsibility. If you want to find out more about my work, you can go to my basic website, fleetball.com. That's a good place to start. And you can find your way there to other things. All the online courses that I have available and the online summits I put on, we have a big summit going on, the best year of your life right now with 62,000 people. That's Heart Mind Institute. Well, actually now we shortened it. You can just, it is called Heart Mind Institute, but you can just go to heartmind.co, heartmind.co. If somebody's interested in the prison work we're doing, you can go to prisonmindfulness.org, prisonmindfulness.org. We also work with correctional officers, probation and parole officers, police, other first responders. That's mindfulpublicsafety.org. And then we also train mindfulness teachers, and that's engagedmindfulness.org. When you were saying that in these kinds of places, most people choose to not experience, they want to check out in some form or another, whether it's drugs or distraction. That's really where uh, most of us are, if not all of us, <laughs> you know, is like I, I pulled up to Target the other day 
I had forgotten my headphones and I literally thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to go into Target with all my senses. This is terrible. You know, I won't, I won't have my podcast or anything playing. I'm, I'm raw dog in life. This is horrific. There's so many distractions that if you have not been meditating for a while, if you have not been spending time experiencing full reality, 10 minutes of meditation is going to feel just excruciating. 10 minutes of, of feeling your feelings can feel unbearable if you've been distracting yourself with, with TV. And I, I'm a fan of TV. I'm a fan of shows. But this kind of nonstop track, giving the, the mind, giving ourselves no chance to check in with ourselves. whether it's you go to work, you stay busy at work all day, you get off work, you're not feeling well, you have a beer, you watch TV, you go to bed, you do it over. There's not a lot of room for us to make sense of what happened to us, to make sense of how our boss acted. Was that appropriate? Should I bring it up? Should I not bring it up? That's really, I think, what we get into when we talk about your practice, which is mindfulness, which is the, the practice of learning how to be in reality, learning how to be in the, the conscious human experience of what reality is, at least. Let's talk about that in your model, about how mindfulness enters the game, how mindfulness in a prison that's maybe not so fun is still a benefit to... Absolutely. It saved my life, to tell you the truth. Yeah, the radical responsibility model is very grounded in mind training and mindfulness, as well as emotional intelligence training, and also the basic context of what I call basic goodness, which is that underneath all of it, our being, you know, who we are as human beings, we have this unconditional innate goodness, and I believe all of life does. But mindfulness is, mindfulness literally means to remember. So to remember what? To remember to come back to the present moment. So it's a way we train our minds to, to simply be more present and then to develop a capacity for self-reflective awareness and environmental situational awareness. So it's about becoming aware, being more awake and more aware. Without that, it doesn't have to be, quote, Buddhist meditation, or any, but some kind of self-reflective practice that encourages awareness. And really, you can find these kind of practices in all the world's great traditions, uh, all the, the more contemplative sides of all the mainstream religious traditions, as well as some of the lesser-known ones, our philosophical systems, shamanic traditions, indigenous traditions. They all have some form of mind training and awareness training. If we don't have some kind of awareness practice, it's like walking through, life is like walking through a, a minefield blindfolded being in relationships, another minefield, blindfolded, right? So de have developing a self-reflective practice allows us to start to develop some self-understanding so we begin to understand what makes us tick and why am I feeling the way I feel? Why am I reacting the way I react? Most of us think, well, that's just the way I am, right? No, that, there really is no way we are. I mean, we have some personality stuff that's pretty hardwired early in childhood, but it's ultimately, it's, most of it's pretty changeable. And certainly a lot of the behavior patterns that are really getting in our way in life are completely changeable. We now have known for several decades that our brains are changeable, plastic, the idea of neuroplasticity. So there's a lot we can do to retrain ourselves, to heal our own nervous system, to heal our neurobiology, and then actually change our brains to where we have a brain that's really a much kinder, friendlier vehicle to live our lives from and really supports going where we want to go, Right. So there's a tremendous amount we can do with training ourselves through various kinds of mindfulness and awareness practices. 
And again, if we don't do that, then we're kind of walking in the blind. And as well as developing that self-understanding of what makes me tick and why I think and feel and react the way I do, and then having the capacity to not necessarily just go along with the habitual patterns, right? I'm, I'm stepping back a little bit from my experience. And so from that kind of witness mind, I have choices about how to respond to life and rather just being locked into this very mechanical, reactive way of living. And with that same awareness, I then extend that out beyond myself and I, I begin to understand others and I understand kind of how the world works and I understand family dynamics and group dynamics and organizational dynamics. And I just begin to be able to navigate life with a lot more intelligence and skills. So to me, so having some kind of mind training, some kind of self-awareness practice, it's just a fundamental basic human skill. And thank goodness we're actually starting to introduce it to young children, even in K-12 education. Mindfulness is coming to the mainstream as well, which is really wonderful. And it's in K-12 education. It's in the military. It's in Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies. It's really gone everywhere because it's a really simple skill. It's free. Anybody can learn it. And it's been shown to profoundly enhance our lives, to enhance our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and well-being, as well as being a path of personal evolution, right? So I'm a big proponent of mindfulness. I can't imagine my life without it. And teaching and sharing the practice of mindfulness has been a big part of my life for a long time. It's funny. I, I have some like, uh, like the, the word mindfulness always just bugs me to this day. <laughs> I love the practice. Don't get me wrong. But it's such a, like the idea that the Cartesian error, as I heard somebody put it the other day, that the mind and the body are separate. You know, you take the mind out of the body, you got a soggy lump of, of uselessness. But uh, I completely believe in the idea of what's behind it's just the word that bugs me so we'll skip it the idea of self-reflection and of taking time to be conscious and to be reality I'm a believer I have significant buy-in in my life in terms of the things I do I, I, I wake up and I try to meditate and I wake up and I try to pray and I, I have been devoutly journaling not on social media as a, as a part of that practice, because what makes it into my journal, the photos that I take and print out and put in my journal are so different than the photos that I would take and put on social media. And so I don't have the, the clinical background to understand what's happening as I do this practice, but I understand that something deep is happening, that there's some kind of creative process going on when I'm writing about how that day affected me, what my energy levels were, what my happiness levels were, which are things that I just try to track for when I'm trying to find patterns. What do I not want to forget? I, I understand that something's happening. Now, the thing that throws me off and I think throws a lot of people off, and one of the reasons why I specifically wanted you on Fleet is that a lot of the people who preach mindfulness from the mountaintops, I just don't connect with. I feel like they're house cats telling us raccoons to not eat trash because if you just sit and wait, food will be provided. Well, I'm, I'm interested in mindfulness in the real world. I'm interested in who has the spirituality figured out while raising four kids, going to traffic, dealing with a boss they don't love, which, you know, I, I'm my own boss and I don't love them. It's just part of, of working. What is the benefit? So when my dear friend right now is totally going through the stages of grief, he's making tremendous progress. He, you know, he lost somebody, thought he could never live without, and he's going through the rewriting of his, what his path looks like. Because when you lose your partner, you lose your future if, you've, if you believe that you're going to spend the rest of your life together. And what is 
the purpose? Why, why should he feel his feelings? Why shouldn't he check out? What, what are we doing here by being in our bodies, in our minds, and in our current real surroundings? Well, I think that's a good question for all of us to just live into, right? Um, as you said, there, are no, there aren't necessarily any ultimate ontological a- answers that we can really put our finger on, but we can live into these questions, and that's very important. I definitely feel for your friend. I've had a lot of major losses in my life. I lost my son two years ago, and I lost my beloved partner. Her name was Denise. I lost her in 2008 to cancer, and I lost an earlier partner to cancer. And my spiritual teacher died while I was in prison. So I, I've had a lot of loss. And when we when we go through loss, uh, we are really losing part of ourselves because our, our self, as it, as it exists, exists within a nested set of social relationships, and especially our close relationship. The self doesn't stop with the skin, right? We live in a relational field. And so when we have a major loss like that, it's a complete disruption of who we are. And so it takes us a while to reweave an integrated uh, self-structure again from which to live and operate, even with awareness, not necessarily the small self-ego that we're unconsciously wedded to, but we're still, we all operate from a sense of self, a self-structure. And and that's that whole process of grieving and healing that we have to go through. There's something in psychology called the pain paradox. And we're all pretty hardwired to seek pleasure and avoid pain, seek comfort and avoid discomfort. We share that with all species. And if we actually pay attention to ourselves, even really try to focus just for an hour or or for a whole day, if you could, you'll find that we spend a great deal of our time chasing comfort and avoiding discomfort. And that's very mechanical. It's kind of an animal level way of living, right? It's, it's, it's completely normal. It's a human condition. We don't need to feel bad about it at all, but we don't have to remain trapped there. So one of the ways it's easy to lean into comfort and pleasure, and that can take us into greed and addiction. It's not so easy to lean into discomfort. So one of the ways that we wake ourselves up is being willing to embrace it. As a human being, I'm going to experience both pleasure and pain comfort and discomfort, suffering. It's just part of being a human being. In fact, all sensory experience arises on a spectrum of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant all the time. And so by being willing to lean into that which is uncomfortable and go through the pain, we wake ourselves up and embrace the totality of our lives. And I believe we reclaim our dignity as human beings. So the pain paradox is that we we instinctually want to shy away from pain, withdraw from it, or push it away. But we know all the different human traditions that transformation, all the good stuff, transformation, joy, a a real life, authenticity, it's all on the other side of that pain. We have to go through the pain, right? And so that's why it's called the pain paradox. And so by learning to be willing to feel what we're feeling and move through the difficult things in our life and be with them, journaling is a great way to be with things, right? To be with that is really the process of transformation and of, of waking up as a human being, which it's not like we're seeking suffering, but suffering is part of life, right? So we can, we can either choose to live our lives sort of addicted to pleasure and comfort and living really, if we're honest with ourselves, in terror of discomfort, pain, and suffering. And, you know, that's a very mechanical and ultimately kind of cowardly way to live. And again, I don't mean that in a, in a demonizing or pejorative way. It just, it just is, right? And it takes courage to, to face life and lean into the challenge of life. But that's where all the good stuff is. That's where all the evolution and all the growth is, right? It's just a really important part of life. And we really need to say that the human condition sets us up for living a life that's not awake, to numb ourselves out, to live in a mechanical way. Because job one for any species is survival. So we have a lot of biologically driven conditioning that's just all about 
fear and survival. And, and that's just a human condition. But we also have the capacity to transcend that. We have the capacity to step up, uh, beyond that, right? That's our birthright as well. But it takes work. It's the work of becoming a, a conscious human being is not a joy ride. In a sense, it ultimately is because that takes us into the joy of life. But we have to be willing to experience suffering along with it because that's the totality of being a human being. As a teacher and somebody with a clinical background too, but somebody with great spiritual knowledge as well, who's dealing with people in the real world. I imagine you're giving back to to many other incarcerated individuals and also just private students who I'm sure are seeking for a good reason. They're seeking you for a good reason. In my prep for this interview, I was talking to a a dear friend of mine who's a real scholar of of Buddhism. And he told me about the the poison arrow parable and about this, this man gets shot with an arrow and somebody comes to help and he goes, okay, pull, pull the arrow out. And the guy goes, well, what's the wood of the arrow made out of? And what's the, what kind of feathers are those on the arrow? And he's going, just pull the arrow out. And it, it's, a, it's this parable of there's things that are more useful. There's information that's more useful than others in, in context, in the moment. And as you're, as you're teaching people to, to take responsibility and to do the work, I guess, of, of both the therapeutic work and the, the, the spiritual journey work, what do you think is the most useful parts of that? Like what should be guided by and what should we kind of let just be? What is the arrows wood made out of that we don't necessarily need to focus on? And, and where is the reduction of suffering in terms of work done? Yeah, well, I think I'll say a couple of things about that. One is within the radical responsibility model, I say that the the ultimate distinction, a really critical distinction to get, is the distinction between ownership and blame. Most of us have been enculturated to believe that when something happens, somebody's got to take the blame, right? And so if I can't find somebody else to blame, I'm going to have to take the blame myself. And I don't want any more blame. And I've experienced enough blame and shame in my life. So I just instinctually deflect blame. We all do it. We instinctually deflect blame outwards. And we don't need to feel bad about that against the human condition. But in doing so, we disempower ourselves. Because if I really think that my internal state is caused by people in situations outside myself, then I'm turning my internal state, the control of that over to people in situations outside myself. And it seems very intuitive. I mean, somebody does something and I feel sad or I feel scared or something happens. But actually, that's based on my interpretation of what's happening. And it's based on all kinds of assumptions and the meaning I'm added to things, which leads me to a perception that my needs are not getting met or not. And if I perceive my needs are getting met, I have all the warm and fuzzy emotions. If I perceive my needs are not being met or challenged or threatened, then I start having all the challenging emotions. So there's this whole landscape between the external events and our actual emotions and so forth, which we can take ownership for. We can do that without blaming ourselves. So ownership is never about self-blame. It's obviously not about blaming others, but it has not one iota to do with blaming oneself or blaming victims, right? It's simply ownership because that's where we have choice. It's the only place we have any real personal power and choice. And it's also where the learning is. So if I'm even trying to look at a situation I'm in that I'm not happy about, well, how did I get here? And I can see I did have some part in creating it or enabling it or allowing it or stumbling into it. Well, I'm not seeing that in order to blame myself, I'm seeing that so I can learn because if I understand how I got there, then I can do something differently next time and get different results. So I'm learning, right? And if I can't see I had anything to do with it, I can still say, okay, what am I going to do with it? Because now I'm living at choice, right? Because that's the only place we have any real personal power 
is living a choice. But to do that, we have to understand the difference between ownership and blame. Otherwise, people just get into, they think that's about blaming themselves and shaming themselves. And so they never want to go there because, of course, none of us want any more shaming or blaming. Or we do habitually get into shaming ourselves. And this has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's all about choice and ownership for the purpose of learning. So that's one thing. The other thing is that to have any ability to do this, we have to really work at our own self-healing, self-acceptance, and self-compassion. We need a foundation. We can't beat ourselves up into this, right? And it has to be a ground of tremendous self-compassion. And again, that's where mind training is so important because using various contemplative tools of mindfulness and awareness meditation from different traditions, we can get down below the noise, right, of our lives, the external noise and internal noise, and even below all the conditioning into a place of our being where it's absolutely unmistakable to us that there's nothing wrong with us, that we don't need fixing, that we're not broken. We have this experience of what's been called, my teacher called it basic goodness. So it's called Buddha nature, or Christ nature, or our divinity, or our sacredness. It's just that part of our being that's fundamentally good and pure and whole and has never been touched by any of the rest of this stuff. We can directly experience that through contemplative means, through meditation. And when we directly experience it, it's ours forever. We know that's there. We may not live there from that completely. Sometimes our confidence in it may waver, but the more directly we experience, the more our confidence grows. And that gives us a tremendous foundation from which to live our lives. And along the way, correctly using meditation practices that are imbued with self-compassion and self-acceptance, we're developing a much more benevolent relationship with ourselves, a friendlier relationship with ourselves, and we're actually cultivating a, a spirit of self-compassion. So then those two things combined give us the courage to face our lives and face the truth of our lives and lean into it and actually take ownership without getting triggered into some kind of self-blame or shaming. I think that's really what it is about understanding that and having enough understanding of how all that works. Like we don't have to get a PhD in psychology. I like what Tony Robbins, who's one of the great life coaches out there, he's a big figure. So some people like him, some people don't, but I actually think he's helped millions of people. He likes to say, I want to help all of you become practical psychologists. You don't need a PhD in psychology. He doesn't have one. I don't even know if he got his high school degree. And he says, but you need to understand enough about your own psychology in order to not become a victim of your own psychology, but to get in a self-leadership position. So we all need to know enough about our own psychology and the basic human psychology in order to be skillful enough to thrive in life. And one of the best ways to get that is through the kind of self-awareness practices that we're talking about here with mindfulness and awareness meditation. One of the things that stuck out to me too was that chapter of the book when you mentioned about the difference between ownership. I actually have a note. Uh, I was going to bring it up. It, it, is, it is huge when, like, who's going to care more about the direction of a community? Somebody who has saved up and bought a house in the community or somebody that rents someone else's house? We're an apolitical show, but this is one of the great fears of mine with the middle class dwindling is that people aren't feeling that ownership into their community. In that path of going from, let's say, victim to to owner, there are, there are some, you and I, I think, can both, uh, <laughs> we both have experiences where ultimately we're responsible for the things that happen to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm definitely responsible for all the hardships in my life for the most part. I, it's hard to find an exception to that. But there are terrible things that happen that aren't. Mm-hmm. If you could take us on a little guided journey almost of, of, of what the, the, the path is, what is the, the way to approach these types of problems and stories in a way that helps us guide through 
what it means to to be an owner and not at fault, not to blame ourselves, but to to own it in a way that is useful to our continuing on our journey. Everything I just said about developing that foundation is really important to our ability to do so, but also having the insight in terms of what actually works, what's going to lead us forward and what's what's not going to lead us forward, right? Having that insight is really important. When people get that that core insight, then generally going to stay on that path where it's life, I mean, any of us, we find ourselves complaining and blaming at any time, but the, the, the question is how long do we stay stuck there, right? And how often do we do it? And hopefully we do it less often and we get stuck for less time as we evolve forward in our lives, right? I'll give you an, an example. So when I go into prisons um, and I'm leading a class or a training with prisoners, I want them to get two things from me. I want them to get that I really get that they have been victimized. Most people that end up incarcerated have horrendous childhoods and they were really set up to go to prison. And in many cases, it has to do with extreme poverty. It has to do with racism. It has to do with drug addiction, alcoholism in their families of origin. Many of them have suffered severe physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or all three. I get that. I also get that our criminal justice system by design or by default is very racist in its impact. There's a tremendous amount of injustice in it. People are over-prosecuted and criminalized, and, and that happens along racial fault lines in, in really just despicable ways. And, and I want them to know that I get that too. I also want them to know that it, it just breaks my heart to see any fellow human being incarcerated. And they get that because that's who I am and that's how I feel. They also, I want them to get that, you know, that they're my brothers and sisters because, you know, I haven't left that world behind. I'm very grateful that I can go in and out of prisons these days and, and they, they let me out when I go in, right? Uh, so, but at the same time, I haven't left that world behind. These are, these are not only my fellow citizens, but they're really my brothers and sisters. And so they get all that. The other thing that I really want them to get that no matter how they ended up where they are now in this situation of being incarcerated, their future is going to be determined by one and one only thing. And that's by the choices they're making today and tomorrow and the next day, the choices they're making and the actions they're taking. They can sit and stew and create narratives all day long about how they like, you know, they've gotten a bum rap in life and they've been victimized. And that's all can may all be true. And that's not going to take them anywhere. So I'm not saying they need to disavow that. They can recognize, wow, I've had a tough life. And they should recognize that. I think it's really important for them to see, wow, I had a really tough childhood. My father was abusive or my mother was abusive, or I really did grow up under a lot of racism and extreme poverty and and social injustices. That's all true. I've had a rough life. And here I am. Somehow I got this far. And here I am in this situation of a prison. Okay, that's all true. And I need to have a lot of self-compassion for myself about all that. And okay, now what? What am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? Because we all got to where we are. And once we're adults, I mean, children need to be nurtured and protected. And this is a conversation for and about adults. But wherever we are in life, at some point, there isn't anybody that can do anything about where we're going to go in the future except us. Now, we can get help, and if we need help, we should get help. Good mentors and support therapy if we need it, teachers, but we have to do the work. So I want them to get that if they want to go out and battle the social injustices in the world, well, then educate yourself while you're in prison, get your butt out of prison, and get out there and change the world. And hopefully do it from a place of empowerment, not from the victim mindset or not from trying to get back at people, Right. But really, it is completely up to you 
the quality of your life while you're here in prison. You can live as a miserable prisoner feeling imprisoned, abused, or many people have written, many prison authors have written how they discovered freedom in prison. It's not that common, right? Most most people in prison are feeling abused and really caught up in the victim mindset. And, and, and prison is a very debilitating, horrible experience for them for the most part. But there have been many people who have awakened in one level or another within many different traditions in prison. And they've written about how they found freedom in prison, right? And my time in prison, there was a lot of suffering. The biggest suffering was being separated from my son who was growing up without his dad. The rest of it was just, it was a hellish environment where you have on a good day, you may only have a dozen highly dehumanizing encounters with either the staff or your fellow prisoners. It's incredibly noisy and chaotic, incredibly uncomfortable, kind of miserable environment. I lived in that environment for 14 years, especially after the first couple of years because of deep practice, really in a cheerful state of almost a joyful state sometimes. And I wasn't, it wasn't like I was in some deluded state. I was still experiencing a suffering. I was very living in the real world of prison, but I, I wasn't creating any additional suffering on top of that for myself, right? That all came out of mind training and practice. So I, I make it real clear, you know, what you're going to experience during incarceration and your ability to get out and do something with your life, despite everything that's happened and all the injustices is now completely up to you. And uh, so I want them to get all that. So it's a mixed bag of, of really understanding. There are a lot of causes and conditions that could contribute to where we are at any point in time. And we want to have a lot of compassion for ourselves and others about all that. And at some point, we're making choices. And those choices determine our future. Wow. Well, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I definitely want to respect it. I would like to end on one final question, which is almost like a thought exercise. So if you will, role, role play with me for a second. But if I handed you my phone and on the other end of it was somebody who had just been incarcerated that day. It was their first day in prison. And somebody says, hey, the phone's for you. And they pick up and you're on the other line. What What is the message you would want to say? You can say it like you're saying it to them. What would you want them to know? I, I would try to convey everything I just spoke about, right? If I had the opportunity to try to convey that context, that mindset, right? I would try not to get caught up in the drama of their situation. I go, boy, you're you're in a rough spot, aren't you? You've managed to get yourself into a pretty rough spot here. You know, and they might start, well, I didn't get, well, but you know, okay, well, one way or another, you're in a pretty rough spot. What are you going to do with it? That would be my next question too. I would acknowledge you're in a rough spot and what are you going to do with it? That would be the basic message. Now, I might give them some quick advice that'd be very idiosyncratic to somebody in that prison, right? Get busy, get some discipline, get in shape, work on your education, Stay away from sex, stay away from gambling, don't hang out, and you'll be fine. Thank you so much, Fleet. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Been good to be with you today. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If I've earned your support today, please go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. Of course, you can always write us a review on iTunes. I love to read them, and I read every single one. And share the episode with a friend or family member if you'd like to help us out and be a part of this program's living, breathing success. Thank you. Have a great day.